Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Have you ever felt frustrated with God? Have you ever looked to the message of Scripture and seen these glorious predictions and felt kind of like, well, to be honest, rolling your eyes? Sure, someday that'll happen. Have you ever felt, well, discouraged? Not to the point of, you know, completely giving up, but to the point of losing your spiritual fervor and downplaying your commitments to the Lord because, well, life is just hard sometimes. If so, the book of Malachi is for you. Now, I didn't say that you would like the prophecy of Malachi, but still, it's for you. Malachi doesn't pull any punches. Uh, This is a hard-hitting smack over the head from the very first line to the very last. It addresses people in a situation very similar to the one I just described. These were people who would have been familiar with the great prophecies of Haggai and the post-exilic prophets. These prophecies were all tied up with the return from exile and the hope of a golden messianic age. You know, in fact, many introductions to the Old Testament organized the prophets around this general scheme. The pre-exilic prophets, the exilic prophets, and the post-exilic prophets. Throughout, readers come across warnings of judgment for sin, that the exodus will be undone and the people will be cast out of the land. But they also come across promises of salvation, that God is coming for them. He'll rescue them from their oppressors, bring them back into the land, and then that golden age will finally begin. Ezekiel, for example, prophesied that God would be a good shepherd, searching for the lost sheep of his flock, rescuing them from wherever they were scattered and bringing them back into the land, where he would set up his servant David, the Messiah, as a shepherd to ensure their peace and prosperity. So you could just imagine the expectation when people uh, are finally coming back into the land after being banished to Babylon. And then when they finally returned, well, it seems like not much has happened. Under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people worked to rebuild the temple and the walls. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah work alongside of them, encouraging the people. Haggai, for example, makes promises like this in 2, 3 to 9. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Well, eventually the work goes on, but to the audience of Malachi, it didn't feel like the treasures of all the nations were coming to where they were. The people were disillusioned with their relationship to God. They had grown lax in their commitments. 
the commentator Andrew Hill writes, quote, The despair and doubt triggered in the restoration community by the apparent failure of the prophetic visions of Haggai and Zechariah soon characterized the intellectual disposition of the age, a disposition that pouted that Yahweh had indeed forgotten his covenant with Israel, end quote. Malachi speaks powerfully into this situation, diagnoses their problem, and gives them their medicine. So, as we begin our study of Malachi, I'd like for us to spend this session looking at what we can know about when this book was written and the political and economic situation of that time period. And then, in our next session, we'll look at the author and the audience of Malachi. We've already mentioned how Malachi speaks into a situation after the rebuilding of the temple. So that puts us sometime after 515 BC. The long discussion about proper and, well, mostly improper sacrifices assumes that the sacrificial cult was up and running. We'll eventually want to spend some time talking about the prophecy that the Lord will appear in the temple, but at this point, we should just realize that the audience would have been near the second temple and that they would have understood this as the Lord coming to the currently standing temple. The people are under Persian rule, as indicated by the Persian word pecha uh, for governor in chapter 1. So that means that Malachi was written sometime after 515 when the temple was rebuilt. It was definitely written before 180 BC because the writer Ben Sira in Sirach 48.10 and 49.10 references Malachi. So these two dates, 515 and 180, set the range of possibilities. But we can get more specific than that. Similarities with Ezra and Nehemiah very well may suggest that Malachi is roughly contemporaneous with these writings. So that confirms a middle of the 400s date. Now, traditionally, Ezra arrives in Palestine in 458 BC, followed by Nehemiah in 445 BC. The commentator Peter Vierhoff writes, quote, With the exception of the desecration of the Sabbath, he, Malachi, rebuked all the abuses mentioned in Nehemiah 13, 6 to 31, end quote. They both talk about religious abuses, tithing, divorce, mixed marriages. Again, the Persian word for governor reinforces a time during Persian rule, which would confirm the idea that Malachi was composed uh, roughly the same time as the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah in the middle of the 5th century. Malachi's composition doesn't seem to be exactly at the time when Nehemiah was governor, since we are explicitly told that he did not accept offerings, and Malachi ironically challenges his audience to go ahead and try to offer their defective offerings to their governor and asks if that governor would accept them. So it couldn't be precisely when Nehemiah was governor, but that overall period of time fits nicely. But though the circumstances seem broadly similar, we shouldn't lean too heavily on this to pin down an exact date. We read of a revival in Ezra and Nehemiah, which addresses much of the same problems contained in Malachi. But you know, there are just so many unknown variables here that this observation isn't all that useful in narrowing down a date. Many see Malachi as being composed before the events in Ezra and Nehemiah because, well, the sorts of sins Malachi describes are quote-unquote fixed in Ezra and Nehemiah. However, even Nehemiah 13 records that he too had to revisit the problems he thought he had fixed earlier. So this leads to the question, how long does a revival have to hang around before the people fall back into the same sin? It doesn't have to be very long. 
So we really aren't in a position to say that because Ezra and Nehemiah corrected a situation, it must have stayed corrected for any length of time. Similarly, we can't deduce that since the people responded to Ezra, Malachi could come before or after that correction. So I don't think that the reform of Ezra to Nehemiah is super helpful. Uh, One argument from Ezra and Nehemiah, which I think has more credibility and suggests but does not prove the composition of Malachi predates the events of Ezra and Nehemiah, is the subject of divorce. Now, we'll read in chapter 2 some very strong statements regarding divorce. They're unqualified and pretty straightforward statements. However, for those of you who have read Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that there's this really difficult and awkward part in which the people are forced to send away their wives. If Malachi were written after this strange edict, it does seem kind of unlikely that he would give such a straightforward, unnuanced, blanket statement against divorce, uh, putting him seemingly against the directive found in Nehemiah. Uh, this suggests, but again, uh, doesn't prove that Malachi was written before the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra 5.1 and 6.14 record the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. On the one hand, if Malachi were ministering around this time, it would be strange that Ezra didn't mention him. However, as we'll see next time, there are good reasons to doubt that a person named Malachi actually wrote this prophecy. Sometimes commentators point to the invasion of the Nabataeans, who took over southern Judea and the Edomites, and eventually this became Idumea. However, our reconstruction of when this happened is shaky, so it'd be unwise to make any deductions from this historical marker. The most we can say with a reasonable level of confidence is that Malachi was composed sometime in the 5th century BC. If we buy into the reasoning that Ezra and Nehemiah correct the same problems Malachi addressed earlier, then this puts sometime in the early 5th century. So, while not precise, this general time frame does allow us to say something about the political and economic situation. The Persian Empire divided itself into satrapies, which were then divided into smaller provinces, and then even further into sub-provinces. Often, local leaders were allowed to remain and operate on this small level. The name given to the province or sub-province for our interests was called Abarnahara, meaning beyond the river, and would have included Palestine, Syria, Phoenicia, and Cyprus. At this stage of history, the area of our audience in Malachi is called Yehud, which then later becomes Judea in New Testament times. As is known from Old Testament history, Darius supported the people going back to their own country and even refinanced this rebuilding, which included elements of their local religion. However, when Xerxes took over in 485, he stopped this practice with even heavier taxation. Now, Nehemiah chapter 5 records the difficulty that this made at the time, including high taxes, confiscation of property, famine, and even debt slavery. Let's read just a little bit from that passage to get a feel for the kind of situation. Nehemiah 5, 1 to 5 in the English Standard Version. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as theirs. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. 
and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now, Nehemiah goes on to get angry with the rich people because they were exacting interest. This adds even another layer of difficulty on the people. In that chapter, they listen and do change their ways, but that, of course, doesn't eliminate all of the hardship. All this means is that the people have a little bit of self-rule, but are mostly still under a foreign power, experiencing not only natural hardship from the environment, but also political hardship. For those who may have connected all of Israel's troubles to being in exile and out of the land, thinking that all will be well once we get home, the message of the prophets would have seemed to kind of have lost their luster. They thought that the golden age was just around the corner, and it probably seemed like the prophets just kept on kicking the can further down the road, just wait a little bit longer. And so the people had become disheartened in their zeal for the Lord. It's a situation that I think many of us can easily relate to. If so, we need to hear the message of Malachi. It's a book that reminds them of the seriousness of being a part of the covenant people. It's a book that reminds us that God is watching and knows our inner attitudes. It's a book that reminds us of a need for messengers from God who gives us the divine perspective on things in which the future is just as certain as the present, and so we must faithfully press on and hope for that day, which Malachi 4 describes as the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.